0: My name is Susan Longest. I have a PhD from the University of Chicago in evolutionary biology. I'm currently an assistant professor at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, Colorado. And I also serve as chair of citizen science on the Grand Valley Audubon Society uh, board.
1: And you're my sister.
0: And I'm your sister. Yeah.
1: Welcome to Various Things. My name is Gary Lama. Today's episode is a very special one for me because the subject of our conversation is my sister, Susan Longest. She is currently a assistant professor at Colorado Mesa University, uh, dealing with biology and evolutionary biology. In addition to this, she likes to travel the world and take pictures of things. Um, her interest for biology and evolutionary biology in particular is beyond anything I've ever encountered in anyone else. She truly has a passion for the subject, and uh, listening to her um, explain some of this stuff to us today is uh, has, has been uh, quite a treat for me, and I hope, I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, due to the length of these episodes, we've split them into four parts. Uh, this will be part one. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Um. So... Evolutionary biology, you went to school for that,
2: yeah?
0: Yep. (laughs) Where did you go? Well, let's see. I went to Cornell University for undergrad, and I majored in biology with a concentration in neurobiology and behavior. And then I went to grad school at the University of Chicago with the Committee on Evolutionary Biology, my PhD is. And my master's, which I also got from the University of Chicago, are both in evolutionary biology. And then I did a postdoc at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana, and studied the population genetics of brown pelicans in relation to the oil spill.
1: So you believe in evolution?
0: Yes. (laughs) It's not a matter of believing in evolution. It's a matter of accepting that it is fact.
1: All right. Um, so explain to me what is evolutionary biology?
0: Well, so I mean, I usually teach my students since my job is primarily teaching at Colorado Miss University University, um, just the basics of evolution. And really you can sum it up in three words, which is descent with modification. And that gets at really the four kind of tenets of the theory of natural selection by Charles Darwin, um, which was the mechanism of evolution. So really, it's the idea that there are going to be changes, mostly through mutations that are accumulated over time, and some of those will be more beneficial than others, and natural selection will act on those. So for example, you know, these mutations are random. and the DNA sequence, will be passed on to the offspring. And so, you know, one good example is like giraffes. You know, if you start um, getting mutations that make longer necks over time, then the giraffes are able to reach more foliage, which they feed on, and might have better reproductive success. So because they're in better body condition, they'll be selected for, for having longer necks.
1: And those three words you said, what were they that summed it up?
0: Right. Descent with modification.
1: Descent with modification.
0: Yeah. I get that the idea that, um, you know, it's changes at the genetic level and they're passed on through time to offspring. So it's not the, the case that this happens, you know, with one, within one generation or anything like that. It's over long periods of time. But, you know, if you Google things like evolution in action, that's kind of terminology for species that are showing um, evolution within our lifetime, that we can actually see it. So, species like fruit flies that actually have, you know, um, very short generations and so they can produce many, um, you know, offspring and generations in a short period of time and so it can basically speed up the process of evolution versus if you take, you know, humans one generation is you know a couple decades there, so that's probably not the best choice if you're looking to see evolution in action
1: right so um so it's, it, what would cause something to mutate faster?
0: so there are you know genes are different and their rates of mutation um their rates of evolution, and so that's what it gets to when people are talking about the molecular clock in terms of evolution not all genes change at the same rate. And so – and that's about the level of my expertise on that one. I haven't dealt with that issue in a while. Um, But what's important is that some genes mutate faster than others. I mean, a big part of it is you might hear about, like, ultraviolet radiation, you know, so exposure to – sunlight. You know, that's one of the major damaging aspects of DNA. And so through getting UV radiation, you get mutations accruing. And I think a lot of people in terms of their, their issues with evolution, you know, a lot of people think there's a problem between evolution and religion. And um, I actually was just in one of my classes, this LGBT class I teach, we had an evangelical pastor come in to talk <laughs> as our final class. And he basically said he has no problem with evolution and religion and put up a nice picture of Jesus holding on the origin of species by Charles Darwin and having a thumbs up. <laughs> so needless to say, we're going to become friends. But um you know, it really there's tons of books out there written both from the atheist perspective and from the um religious perspective of different religions, you know, about evolution and religion and kind of getting at that issue of whether there are problems, if you can believe one and, and accept the other as well. For me what I tell my students is, you know, you know, it's a personal decision if you what you view. And, you know, I don't really care what they believe in terms of, like, religion. What I care about is that they understand what evolution actually is, especially if it's going to be on their final exam. (laughs) And, you know, and I was like, you know, even if you disagree with something, I always think it's better to understand what it's actually saying so you know what you're disagreeing with rather than just saying, you know, being afraid of it or, you know, not wanting to learn what it actually is about.
1: So why do you think that there has been this... um this kind of polarization in terms of religion being anti-evolution or creationist um, and uh, being kind of sold to Sunni people maybe more um, at a louder voice than than these um, accepting uh, viewpoints that you're talking about?
0: Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. And again, that gets into What I typically try to avoid, I mean, coming from a background where I say non-human primates and people would always ask about, like, evolution of primates and did we come from, you know, monkeys and things like that. And I did my best to always avoid that question unless I was stuck on a plane with somebody (laughs)
2: Mm
0: -hmm. and just try to, um, you know, just avoid conflict with that. But in the end, my view is that it deals with the beginnings, with Mm -hmm. creation,
2: Okay.
0: you know, um, and I think there's different ways to rectify that. You know, you might ignore how we actually started mm-hmm. or, I mean, for evolution, we're really looking at the changes that are accumulating, you know, from these forms that we already have. You know, that you have one primordial form in and, and Darwin's words. And then there's accumulations of these modifications and that people, these organisms adapt differently. You know, that's why you get, for example, one of the best known examples is Darwin finches on the Galapagos and how they accumulated all these changes and were able to fill these different environmental niches so that, you know, although they're all birds with beaks, they could have stronger beaks to go for stronger seeds, smaller beaks to go for smaller seeds. So they avoided competition with one another so that they could go for different types of food up to the point of like the woodpecker finch, which actually uses a stick as a tool to get grubs out of a tree. It's pretty awesome.
1: What's a um, woodpecker fence?
0: That's one or of Darwin's finches.
1: Did you say finch?
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Finch, yeah. So it's one of the Darwin's finches. And so it actually utilizes um, takes a hole into a tree and then actually utilizes a stick to get the grub out now there's other species that do that like um
1: weren't there some monkeys yeah. that you didn't you work at you worked at the field Museum in Chicago for a while, right?
0: Well, I took classes there and worked with people that worked there. I was at the University of Chicago campus, but at okay. all
1: and, and those those are monkeys, right.
0: Uh, no, so you're thinking of the Lincoln Park Zoo, actually, which is basically across the road.
1: And those, okay, and, and they're tool-using?
0: Yeah, those are chimps, though, which would be great apes, not monkeys, Gary.
1: Okay. I don't know my species.
0: Yeah, this is, again, the one lesson I try to teach you. If you know nothing else from me, it's that a chimp is <laughs> an ape, but not a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, Elizabeth Bonsdorf was one of my committee members for my PhD, and she studied termite fishing and chumps. And so, for example, you know, that was what Jane Goodall discovered that made us redefine man, because we defined man as um, being able to use tools and mm-hmm. make tools. And then, you know, and... Louis Leakey had a strong hand in getting Jane Goodall out there, just like Diane Fossey with the gorillas and Bruce E. with the orangutans and, um, in the very beginnings of primatology. And so then many years later, Elizabeth Onsworth looked at sex differences in termite fishing and found that the females would watch their moms do the termite fishing. They would use the same length of sticks to put them into the termite mounds and, you know remove the same types of leaves and things like that and have the same exact strategy that their mom utilized. And then they pull out the termites and eat them the same way. Meanwhile, the males, the sons, were just goofing around, doing rough and tumble play, but that's what they're supposed to do, you know, because you get a lot of warfare and conflict in chimpanzees and the males are dominant. Mm -hmm. So the females are more kind of like the gatherers and things like that. And the males are out there leading the group. But when she submitted you know, started publishing the the media were leading stories that read, you know, females are smarter than males. And she actually started getting hate mail from people that didn't even read the article to see what she was actually saying because uh, they just didn't like the title.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess that's a kind of gross generalization of the research. Right. Um, you know, the thing that gets me about the evolution and and kind of God debate is you know if you believe that god created human beings well we we sure weren't manufacturing cell phones w- when we yeah. were created mm-hmm. and we learned how to make more adaptive tools so i you know like i to me it it's almost like it it seems accepting of the the fact that humans have de- have definitely evolved in their uh um expertise with things and in their technological capacities, but for some reason it doesn't grant those same um, abilities to other species, or it kind of ignores that. But um, talking about the female and male differences, uh, you had done a, I think it a Was it a thesis or dissertation?
0: Um, Well, hang on. Before we get to that, I do want to respond more about the whole religion debate a little bit more. And because I was saying that, you know, I think a lot of people, for me, it seemed like the problem was more about creation and then the aftermath, you know, and and that kind of thing. And but this evangelical pastor that just came in and talked, he was saying that it's more about you like fundamentalists, for example. You know, you have these these fundamental concepts. Of what is right and what is wrong, and this goes back to the scripture in the Bible, you know. And as more information comes out about how the Bible was written, um, and how there's kind of copying and maybe uh, different interpretations and different writings as well of the same thing, um, that basically they're kind of scrambling to hold on to something, you know. And so, as you lose each piece of the puzzle you're basically grasping on, you know, to hold on to something, you know. And so it becomes the fact that they can be less adaptable because they're basically losing these tenants that they structure their entire lives around, you know. And so I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, we were specifically talking about acceptance of um, gay people and that kind of thing and how that fits into the scripture, but it's just you know i think some people are less open to to accepting things that are right in front of their eyes because of what it means in the larger picture for well if you accept one thing what does that mean you have to accept everything well, right a bit of your tenants so it,
1: it it causes a person to rebuild their own moral construction of the world their own relative, like their place in the world is built up of these assumptions that they've made through their life. And, right. you know, it's like a sweater thread. If you start to pull it, the whole sweater can come undone and then you have to rebuild yourself. And, and to do that is is ultimately to have a personality crisis, which could drive a person towards self-destruction. So I, I understand right. that the reluctance <laughs> for people to, to, um get into that because i think it's actually something that we're like biologically kind of predisposed to try and avoid doing you know like if you look at the way the human mind works about how when we're angry we kind of shut down our reasoning abilities and this kind of thing um i think we're actually kind of programmed to kind of self-preserve with a certain stubbornness maybe um and a reluctance to. Some more than others. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, maybe to persevere because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what we think. It matters that we acquire food and Mm -hmm. protect our flock and, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah. So I can definitely see that.
0: So you mentioned kind of accepting tool use and new technologies and innovations in people, but I think that's still a bit different than what, people have a problem with it in terms of evolution. You know, like when I teach evolution and zoology class to biology majors or to non-majors in intro biology, they don't have a problem with seeing mutations at the genetic level mm-hmm. and realizing that how sickle cell anemia came to be mm-hmm. and how that might be advantageous, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talk about evolution every single day. I just don't use the term evolution. We talk about changes at the DNA level. mm mm-hmm and modification and how that's passed on to the offspring. When I get to the evolution subject at the very end of the course, that's when a few people get a little prickly, and it's gotten a lot better. You know, we're in a fairly conservative town. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, that's when I kind of make my spiel about what I share about them, knowing about evolution. But, you know, I always talk to them. I was like, you know, you might get a little prickly when you hear evolution, that term, or just get like, a little uncomfortable if that's kind of where you're coming from with your background or you just haven't been exposed to it. But what you don't realize is we've talked about it every single day. You know, every little changes, and it's really not those changes at the genetic level that people have a problem accepting. That's pretty obvious and easy to understand and to accept. It's when you talk about, okay new organisms forming, so macroevolution versus microevolution. Okay. But all these changes at the DNA level lead to the new species formation, you know? And so it's not that organisms can use tools. I think most people, when they see a crow in Japan dropping a nut at a crosswalk and then using stoplights to stop traffic so it can go get the nut um, seed that the tires just ran over from the car, most people aren't up in arms about evolution and how it's not factual, I hope not, at least. You know, they think, oh, that's cute. Look how smart the crow is or something like that. Um, But it's more kind of getting, like, to those Darwin finches where you're talking about these accumulations where one species can, over many generations, change into other forms. You know, so from one kind of ancestor, you get modifications leading to different strategies to fill those ecological niches. And in some people's perspectives, I think it's more that they're basically changing within themselves, you know, like the beak might be getting longer over generations or the giraffe's neck might be getting longer. And that's a little bit harder, I think, to wrap your brain around Mm. than humans inventing self, (laughs) you know?
1: But you mean easier to to wrap your... Oh, okay. Okay. Um, So if I'm understanding this correctly, for a macroevolution to occur, It's really just a series of microevolutions that all of a sudden now there's a kind of a marker that we could say, hey, this thing's now, you know, fully working with tools, Mm -hmm. whereas before it kind of was just swinging sticks around.
0: Right, exactly. And, And you have to, you know, the biggest kind of explanation for how we get new species, well, we define species as, you know, organisms that aren't able to reproduce successfully. They either cannot reproduce because their genitalia don't work together. They're in different kind of time zones, nocturnal versus diurnal, different seasonality for breeding, things like that. Those are different types of reproductive isolation. Or if they actually do mate, they produce sterile um, hybrids. And so that's how – that's the biological species concept. There's many ways to define species. That's the most practical. There's a lot of problems with it because it doesn't apply to every species. Mm-hmm. Um, But that's how we define species. If they can't interbreed successfully, then they're separate species. And so by definition, for a new species to form, it has to no longer be able to interbreed with another species.
1: Because it's a little chromosome it just won't work with the other one.
0: Exactly. And so what happens, it might be something like, you know, a pond or a mountain barrier is separating two populations. And so over time, they start not being able to interbreed. Or, you know, fragmentation from much, you know, putting up a city in what used to be a forest and separating two populations there. Um, or it can be within, you know, without a geographical barrier. That's called sympatric speciation. And that's more easily understood in terms of plants where you'll get, Modifications for the numbers of chromosomes accidentally occasionally, and then they stop being able to um, you know mate with uh plants that had the original number of chromosomes mm. but even in and like there's examples of killer whales um where there are some that are residents that stay in the area and there's others that are migratory. So even though they they can come in the same area during breeding, they end up having different vocalizations and they don't interbreed at all. There's also cichlid fish in um, Africa, like Tanganyika and Tanzania, and there's tons of these different species in in the same lake. And so theoretically, they could interbreed, but they get behavioral differences um, that basically keep them from, from interbreeding.
1: that concludes part one of our interview with Susan Longest. Part two is to follow. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org This interview was recorded on March 16th, 2014. back with various things and this is part two of our interview with Susan Longus. Enjoy. So within a species, would like say a sparrow from 2014 be the same as a sparrow from would say,
0: 1640? No. I
2: mean, so generally,
0: it, yes. I mean, if you look at museum collections, you're going to be able to recognize a sparrow. But what you might see is new forms of sparrows coming out. And part of that is dealing with issues of climate change, which is my main focus now. Mm-hmm. Um You know, that's quite a few, several hundred years there that they're dealing with adaptations, not only in terms of other competitors within their communities, um, also in terms of when they're migrating, if they are migratory um, for the breeding grounds. So it might not necessarily be anatomical or morphological that they look different, but in terms of when they breed or um, who they breed with, that might be different.
2: So
1: what you're saying essentially, (laughs) let me see if I understand this. Everything's always changing. yeah, Everything's always evolving, and when it evolves to a point where the chromosomes can't mesh with the chromosomes of the previous creature that it might have been in the same family as, then it becomes a different species. hmm Generally, okay. that's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, there's that, that quote. I always forget who says it, but the only constant thing in this world is change. Yeah. And that's incredibly true. And I was trying to think when you asked me to do this interview with all like our warning of it (laughs) what would I say? And I was thinking of opening with that quote, but um you know, because I usually apply that to my personal life but really it's um defining of my entire professional life. You
1: know and 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 especially again.
0: Uh the only constant thing in this world is change. It was someone old and smart, probably Socrates or Aristotle or Gandhi,
1: I've heard I've heard that before. Uh, yeah. it, it's true. It's very easy to. Well, you know, I mean, I think I think almost, you know, maybe even it, it's better for human beings to maybe not notice the change. Um, I mean, for our lives and our daily livelihood, I think it might be really distracting if we could notice all of the. <laughs> things changing around us or maybe well, we do and that's it's
0: hard to see it I mean like imagine you know if you have a child with you and it's growing a little taller each day you're not noticing those little changes but someone who only sees them you know once a year sees them a few inches taller each year and can't believe it right yeah it
2: seems so when very it's gradual
0: changes in front of you yeah it's a lot easier to kind of accept and just and that's the whole thing with climate change actually is you know It's not a hard thing to adapt to gradual change. The problem with climate change is it is so incredibly rapid that that's why we're really at risk of losing between, you know, 25 to 30 percent of all organisms on Earth are the predictions because not many species can adapt as rapidly as they need to for climate change.
1: So climate change is real?
0: Yeah. Are you sure? As sure as I am of evolution.
2: Because
1: okay. sure 'cause i i i i was talking to somebody that was um friends with a um a scientist and, and they had said to me that the earth has generally gone through you know warming and cooling periods
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um apparently the scientist said that like there's actually I mean as far as he was concerned it's kind of hard to prove that it's not just a cooling or a warming period so how how does science deal with that um to show that it's not just an overall global trend but rather some kind of agitation from um society itself
0: right. Well, I mean, if you look at predictions in terms of when um, industrialization increased in humans, for example, you know, from that point on in terms of the pollution and the um, uh, carbon fluorocarbons, the CFCs, you know, going into the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. which is really what's deteriorating the ozone, you know, it's, it's definitely very much because of humans. You know, there might be an overall trend. I mean, there is you know, annual um, fluctuation all the time in terms of water, in terms of temperature and that kind of thing. Um, But what's happening is it's – when you look at the graphs, there's this straight shot up, you know, beyond anything that we've ever known in terms of the rate of temperature increases, um, the rate of fluctuations going on. And so if that is part of an overall long-term cycle – what we're looking at is mass extinction, I think, you know, like,
1: In how many it, years?
0: A, oh, I, have not, I mean, not within our lifetimes, you know, most predictions go out to like 2050 or 2150 or something like that, you know, and, um, but if you're expecting within like, by 2050, I think it is, the predictions are losing 20 to 30% of all plants and animals on Earth because they're less adaptable. I mean, I'm not saying that we might all die. I'm saying that like, if the rate of increase hap- continued to happen, like it is, right? you know, I, I don't know that we could, I think it would, I think it would plateau at some point, I would hope, but who you knows. Um,
1: well, I'm always skeptical when I look at rates of increase, you know what I mean? Because, because um, they generally just don't keep going on the same curve.
0: You
1: know I mean? <laughs> Like, because there's all these protective mechanisms and that's, that's the one thing I've always wondered with, um, uh, like human, humans are very resilient. Um, all the species here on earth are pretty, pretty re- nature. Well, nature as a whole is pretty re- resilient as a system. Do you think there's anything that, you know, almost like going, like, do you think nature could go into a kind of survival mode and protect itself and stop that, um, stop the dynamics that's been presenting to us? And it's, current state to um, alleviate these uh, things that are causing uh, global warming?
0: Well, there's a few things. One is I think many animals are already in survival mode. Many of them have already actually gone extinct. When I was in South Africa, the mountain range we were on, you know, basically mountains are microcosms of what's going on with the globe. and you know, as things get warmer, what you do is you go higher. And when you're stuck on a mountain, you know, they're basically called islands in the sky. Once you go as high as you can, um, there's nowhere else to go, right? And so there's extinction of ant species out on that particular mountain range because it was just getting too warm for them. So we are already seeing extinctions happening mm-hmm. because there aren't other places or options to go to. Um I think what you're asking is about abiotic factors because abiotic factors are basically the non-living factors. So yeah. um, water, temperature, that kind of thing, not the organisms within nature.
1: Yeah, more right? like atmospheric makeup and um, right. weather and this, this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on that. You know, I deal more <laughs> with the animal side of it. Right. I, w- I would – it would be nice to think that there would be some kind of um, reset button or pause button once you get to a certain point. That, but as it is, I haven't heard anything that says that our ozone can stop being deteriorated by F- by CFCs. Well,
1: I'm, yeah, I, I I I wouldn't think it would be actually be a nice thing. We'd probably not like it very much because it might involve like I don't know uh, some weird hurricane system thing that just kills everybody or you know almost the way the the same way a body would uh try to purge uh an infection out of it you know it's not a yeah. not a nice um process it might be painful yeah you yeah. know um well uh so so
0: well hang on i think i think a more hopeful thing is that you know, one thing that I'm very interested in is who's going to survive. Who's going to survive the climate change, for example? And what we see is that the generalists, meaning those species that can adapt fairly easily, mm-hmm. um, are going to survive much. Well, hang on, they're going to yeah. survive much better than specialists. So, for an example, that ant I was just talking about, you know, it, it basically needs a particular habitat. It needs a particular temperature range, and so as it keeps kind of migrating north on the mountain or higher on the, on the mountain other to stay within its its boundaries of what it needs to sustain life, it runs out of options, whereas species that can shift to different diets, they can shift to different habitats, they can shift within temperature ranges, they're going to have a lot better chance. So one big example is, um, for example, birds. So. There's a type of bird called the golden-winged warbler and the blue-winged warbler. And the blue-winged warbler is basically um, kind of like the Midwest to the eastern U.S. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more in the south up to um, kind of just below New York in that area. That was its natural range. With Climate change increasing, it started moving northward as many birds have, uh, as many organisms have for their migration. And so it's actually going more northward, which is the golden-winged warblers range. And so what's happening is, and this is in many species, you're seeing species that were separate. So they were separate species. They weren't interbreeding. They're now in these locations that are the same the same habitats. And they can interbreed. And so they're actually hybridizing. And some of them actually are producing um, viable offspring, meaning they're not sterile, which is the typical view of separate species, right? If they're able to produce a hybrid, it would be sterile. And that's how we know they're separate species. Um, and so you get things like the Brewster's warbler and Lawrence's warbler, which are different types of hybrids that are actually viable. Mm-hmm. Um, Lawrence's warbler is much rarer. And But what's happening, though, is you know, the golden-winged warbler's um, habitat is decreasing. The blue-winged warbler is moving northward due to its own problems of vegetation shifting northward, and it's out-competing the golden-winged warbler. So between mating with the golden winged warbler and producing these hybrids, um, and then all competing the golden winged warbler, basically the golden winged warbler might be um, going extinct. You know, the population has definitely gone through a drastic decline to the point that it's actually a citizen science project at Cornell Lab of Ornithology to map it across the United States. See wow. what's going on. Yeah. And so that's the same kind of thing. You know, like we have polar bears and grizzly bears. They used to be quite separate in their ranges, and now we're getting things called tislies or growlers because it's polar bears mating with grizzly bears because they're actually starting to get within each other's ranges.
2: Wow. And I asked
0: my students, you know, is this something that we should stop? I mean, should we try to keep individuals from mating that weren't supposed to mate, right, in terms of what we've known. And they're like, well, it's nature. I mean, even though it's because of human man-made changes, right, this problem that we're dealing with, um, at least to the level that we're dealing with it, there might be some natural cycles, of course, going on, but definitely, you know, um, urbanization by humans, habitat loss, and then um, all the pollution we put into this. Atmosphere, you know, we've definitely, I guess, exacerbated any problem, and and so they said, you know, I mean, it's definitely an ethical question, but most of them were for, you know, this is what's going to happen, this is how they're dealing with nature, you know, and we just have to see what happens. So,
1: wow, that's that's amazing. So let me um let me ask you um you mentioned that you teach some um l b g t q l g b t yeah q yeah. um classes so um <laughs> why do you do that
0: um definitely not for pay that's for sure
1: <laughs> no i mean like what's your per- what's your what's your personal interest in that
0: are you trying to help me is that what you're asking for well, i mean
1: if you if 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 you want to
0: <laughs> i don't care um well yeah obviously I'm not the straightest person in the tool shed, but, you know, um, yeah, so I am bi and and very much, um, towards the female side of that, you know, okay. like, almost gay, but still I'll hold on to the bi title, but, um, yeah, and so for me, especially being in a fairly conservative town, you know, there's, there's glimpses of, Democrats and liberals in here, which is nice. But for us, it was was actually a response to some hate crimes that had happened with some students about two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It was off campus. It was at a bar. But two male athletes um, beat up two lesbians that were a couple. And to the point that they were, you know, in a hospital dealing with – potential brain damage. And um, there really wasn't much action by the university, by the administration, to deal with that. Yeah. And so some professors in the sociology department and the social behavioral sciences, you know, put together an anti-violence campaign and event, and actually the administration came and tried to shut it down. Um, and I think their excuse was that you know, the trial was still ongoing, and they didn't want details but being said that might affect the trial. But really, you know, from the standpoint of the professors and the campus community, you know, this was a horrific event that had happened, and you need to talk about how to stop violence before things get out of hand and that this won't be tolerated, you know. Yeah. Um, and so a bunch of the professors kind of came together, uh, history professor, sociology professor, um, English professor anthropology professor um, and another sociology professor, I guess, two historians. And I found out about it through um, a student of mine and, you know, wanted to join and so I was a biologist. And so I talked about, it was very interesting, it's very interdisciplinary and one, aspects, one of those aspects is defining your own terms, you know, because we all talk about things differently using our own disciplines, terminology. But for me, I talked about um, how prevalent is same-sex sexual behavior, which is basically just homosexual activity, uh, in animals, but we don't call them homosexuals. We call them the same-sex sexual behavior, you know. So that's an example of the different terminology. And, you know, most people can think of, like, the two male penguins that had a long-lasting bond and things like that, but it's actually quite prevalent um, in the animal kingdom. And I think, you know, for me, when people talk about, you know, homosexuality, is a sin, you know, it's it's against nature. It's like one of the first questions is, will do animals do it? And they do, you know. There's lots of different um, kind of varieties, if you want to say that, of sexual behavior, you know, from female-female to bisexual macaques, mm-hmm. sort of type of monkey, um, you know, to long-term pair bonds between uh, same-sex individuals. And... You know, so it's really interesting. There's a book called Biological Exuberance Published that really looked at this question um, in detail. And it was actually used in a legal dispute in Texas. Um, and so it was a really great example of the animals, which never really have a voice, actually coming to the defense of humans and homosexual behavior in humans. And so this law in Texas to um, basically ban homosexuality was overturned because it's showed that this is, is natural. It happens in animals. And I love that example. Um, yeah, and amazing. for me, I had worked, yeah, I had worked with a woman named Alice Drager, who, um, is probably one of the most amazing people I have ever met. But she's at the intersection of um, history and biology and anatomy, and she has this TED talk called Is Anatomy Destiny? And she's, she's an expert on intersex. She wrote, her PhD thesis on hermaphrodites, which became a book, Hermaphrodites. Um, and now we call those people intersex. She's also worked with conjoined twins and morphism, basically anomalies of what we think of as the normal body type, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, transsexuals and things like that. And so she does a straight talk. And so we actually had her Skype into our class, and the students loved it. And Alice is kind of a whirlwind of brilliance, and so she gave a guest lecture via Skype, and then um, I kind of covered her lecture since none of us actually get paid for the course. We just do it because we love it. Um, I just covered the TED Talk this past year. So, yeah, it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, We've actually added it to the curriculum, but unfortunately only one person will be able to actually keep it going and thus get paid for it. Because right now we had seven professors involved, and so each of us teaches, you know, basically one week for a half a semester course. But I think it's incredibly important to have, and many other schools might have these courses. I think we're the only one in Colorado that actually has a 100-level LGBT course. But in many schools, you know, we're about 20 years behind the times in terms of that
1: that concludes part two of our interview with Susan Longest. Part three is to follow. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on March 16th, 2014. things. This is part three of our interview with Susan Longest. Enjoy how did you get into uh, evolutionary biology?
0: Um Well I it was more into animal behavior. So when I was eight in third grade, I read this book about um, an animal orphanage in Kenya. And from that point on, I knew, even though I had loved animals prior to that, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and that was to be a vet. And I went through, I mean, I was looking up entrance requirements to vet schools when I was like in third grade Mm. (laughs) and middle school. So you know, I had the Merck uh, Dictionary um, of Medicine for the terminology and stuff like that. So I was very determined. And when I got to college, I actually, my freshman year, um, in the summer, I went to Nicaragua to do a course, field course on primate behavior. And I'd always wanted to work on primates specifically. Um, Jim Goodall had always been one of my heroes. And... In college, I started getting these experiences. I was working in the vet school at Cornell, and then I also do um, you know, research on behavior. And I got very torn between whether I wanted to be a vet or actually work in the field with primates. And it came down to if I wanted to work with primates, I would have to come in an exotic species vet. And that means you not only have to get in a vet school, which is very competitive, but then whoever does the best in vet school, you then have to compete with them for these fairly highly competitive slots to be exotic vets so internships for that. And I just didn't know if that would actually happen, you know. And I also got to the point that I didn't want to cut open an animal. I didn't want to do surgeries. I definitely didn't want to do the dog and cat vets that I had, on you know, worked for um, most of my high school career. And... You know, I thought, well, if I go the grad school route, I can really study their behavior and why they do the things they do, and that's what I was really interested in. And also, you know, I can get in the field of time age probably within the next couple of years, and that was true. So I ended up still applying to Cornell Vet School, but I applied to everything else was uh, grad programs. And I ended up going to the University of Chicago to work with um, an advisor who was in It was split between a committee on human development and a committee on evolutionary biology. And so I applied to both um, because the human development was easier to get into, and the evolutionary biology committee was pretty much the elite people got into. Mm -hmm. And I got the rejection letter from human development and started freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then I got the acceptance letter from the Committee on Evolutionary Biology And
1: Wow, so it was exactly the opposite of what you thought was going to happen
0: Well, no, I mean, I hoped I would get in the Committee on Evolutionary Biology but I definitely didn't expect rejection from human development, but I think the reason why was because he was advocating for me for both and so when I got in evolutionary biology they gave the slot in human development to someone else Oh, okay So, yeah, um, or I hope that's what I'm going to tell myself anyway but um <laughs> So, yeah, so it was more that I was studying animal behavior and specifically to work with him. I ended up switching from him as an advisor. He stayed on my committee, but I worked with someone else who actually had been at Cornell with me. When I did this animal behavior club I had started, I had her as a guest speaker, and she ended up – she was a postdoc then at Cornell. She got a tenure-track position at University of Chicago a year before I interviewed there. And so it's just a pretty amazing coincidence. Um, And, yeah, so – You know, I always tell people, because people see evolutionary biologists, and I think they get nervous or intimidated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, my PhD is in evolutionary biology, but I study animal behavior just to kind of let them realize it's going to be okay, you know, that I just study animals. It's not that bad. But in teaching with other people, especially in my department and stuff, you know, when you're at the University of Chicago with all these kind of brilliant people in evolutionary biology. And I was in a program with... It's very broad, you know, because it's not... It's not about, like, genetics or it's not about um, philosophy. It's about evolutionary biology, which can be anything from, like, a paleontologist who studies fossils to um, someone who wears me who actually watches animals and their natural habitats and is accepted within their group and tries not to disturb them while I watch what they're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so... It was very broad, and that was a great learning experience. But I, I didn't get that not everybody had that experience, you know. And so, as I've been on many search committees in my current department, you know, for anyone to have really a background in evolutionary biology mm. is pretty huge. And so, unfortunately, we have to cover many core classes, and often don't get to teach our specialties. Mm. So, um, you know, I don't get to teach a course on evolution or evolution in biology. Um, and so I worry that sometimes that goes down the drain. But I definitely teach evolution in all my courses. And it's just like going home in a way. You know, like that's, that's your focus. That's what your whole background is in. So it's nice sometimes to realize, okay, this is actually a specialty of mine. Not everybody has this. And unfortunately, not everybody thinks of the world that way because I think every biologist should realize that everything relates to evolution. Mm. You can frame every course within evolution.
1: Yeah. Well, because everything's changing. Mm hmm So what is your favorite animal or your favorite (laughs) species? I I won't just –
0: uh, well, it's definitely an animal. I'm not too big on plants. Um, I don't know. Because I'm teaching ornithology, everybody keeps asking me, like, what's your favorite bird? And I think I have a lot of respect for all the animals I've worked with. You know, I adore ringtail tailed lemurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of birds, I, I love Gamble's quail, which we have around here. And I love Rosette spoonbills, which I interacted with a bit when I studied pelicans in Louisiana.
1: Um, and so what is it that you like about them so
0: much? So, rosette spoonbills—they get their name because they have a bill shaped like a spoon coming out of their face. And I saw a picture of a nest of chicks, and basically they were cross-eyed looking at the spoon thing coming out of their face. And I was—I just burst out laughing. It was the most adorable thing ever. <laughs> and um, so, I actually have a skull and parts of the um, bill from uh field work I had found some on this island I was working on and so I show that to my students and things like that. But you know, and I have remnants of pelicans as well. So, um for me it was that the gambled quail are just so interesting. You know, they, they basically are just little land birds and then if they they hate being near you, especially if you're trying to take a picture of them and so then they'll just like dart off and fly twenty feet and you know, they have this little plume coming out of their head and they have this vocalization that's like Oh, and so it just sounds like a kid in a bush somewhere, and then you ride it's a gambled quail. But, oh, wow. um, yeah, and then, I don't know, I mean, being in South Africa, um, there is definitely a bit of magic and, I don't know, being majestic in terms of, like, the elephants there. And um, for me, I've always loved giraffes growing up, so getting to see them and zebras, so...
1: Well, tell me about that study you did at, at Cornell about the um, about the feeding.
0: Yeah, um, well, so it was my honors thesis as an undergrad, and I was looking at this thing called secondary begging and mm-hmm. tree swallows, so with David Winkler, who studied tree swallows for decades, um, and basically, it's the idea that in some birds, the, the chicks actually will beg in the absence of parents. That's why it's called secondary begging and not primary begging. Okay. Because usually they're begging for food when the parents are there. And so one question was, are they just thinking the parents there? Or are they hearing, like, the wind and thinking it's the parent that just came into the nest box and they're begging? And there is a lot of evidence in some of the other species that actually do this. Not all bird species do this, but... Um, that it actually wasn't the wind, you know, that it wasn't ambient noise or anything like that. And so then it becomes an idea of, is this sibling communication? Are they actually communicating with each other in the nest to say, hey, I'm more hungry. Um, I'm going to beg first, you know, when the parent comes back. So that's what I was really looking at. I I basically built this double-decker nest box protocol kind of thing, suspended a video camera from the second floor, if you want to call it that, and just over top of the nest and recorded the nest throughout the season. Um, and tree swallows had a fairly short developmental time before they fledged the nest. And then I watched it on my VCR when we still had those and recorded, you know, at kind of split-second speed, who is the first to beg, and there's a series of kind of postural communication that I was scoring them on. And in the end... I probably should have published that and still haven't done it. It's one of many things in my back pocket. But uh, it didn't seem to be the case that it was accidental. It did seem like there was some some evidence that it might have been sibling communication. But um, I had about three hypotheses going on, and one was not supported. Two were, I don't remember the details too much. I mean, definitely needed further studying.
1: And then your your doctoral thesis was... The female dominance in lemurs, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and what what was that essentially?
0: So, in um, most mammals, males are dominant to females, mm-hmm. except for the majority of lemurs. So, not all lemurs are female dominant, but most are. And what that means is that all females can elicit submissive behavior from all males because in male-dominant species, you might have one kind of female that's more dominant than some of the really low-ranking males. But what we mean by female-dominant species is that every single female is dominant to every single male, even if it's the top-ranking male. So females and males have separate hierarchies, but all females are dominant to the males. So it's quite rare in mammals and awesome, um, but I usually study the anomalies in terms of what we know so that we can better understand kind of the normal or what we think is normal. Um, so I was looking more at the development of female dominance as studying infants through their development and up to kind of the juvenile period of collecting fecal samples to look at their um, testosterone levels to mm-hmm. see if, you know, it was the case that females that are more dominant have higher testosterone, which is related to aggression and also their corticosterone levels, so their um, stress hormones. So is it the case that it goes both ways in animals, but sometimes it's the dominant individuals that have more stress because they're basically trying to reinforce their dominance and not lose it to a mutiny, whereas in other species it's the lower ranking, the subordinate individuals that are higher stressed because they're constantly getting kind of – beat around and pushed around and, you know, um, last last access to food and things like that. So that's what I was looking at and I also looked at kind of social networks and the females, the adult females to determine there's a thing called targeted aggression when one or more females were basically target and beat up on another female. And it can be just removing her from a top rank to a lower rank, mm-hmm. or it could be complete eviction from the group, and that's what I was focused on. And these can be quite brutal. When I was in Madagascar, one happened. They can be anywhere from a couple hours to a couple weeks. Uh, the one I was watching was a couple hours, and unfortunately, because I went back to camp to grab some lunch and came back, and they were gone. It happened within one morning. But when we saw them, again, the the male... A uh, juvenile that was with his mom that was being targeted, he had a hole in his leg so you could see clear through the right and left si- sides of his hamstring. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly brutal. They all lived and they ended up forming a new group on their own with some, some males that left their own group. That's really sad. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. Wow. So
0: I mean, I've I've seen rhesus macaques like males getting beaten up with just blood dripping off them. I saw one whose neck was slit open when I was in Puerto Rico setting them, and they just survived that. You know, like <laughs> this is our worst case of like rescue 911 for humans, but there, you know, he actually was able to survive and it just healed on its own.
1: So, are they more dominant? I mean, in the the lemur community, at least in the group that you were studying, were the females the dominant? Yeah, they were? yeah. It's
0: not a question of if they are. Like that's how it is in every single population of
1: oh, ring lemurs. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's not a question of. Are you the were just trying to
1: dominant? figure out: was it cortisol or was it testosterone that was causing it?
0: Yeah, to find out more about it's called the proximate mechanisms. So the development of dominance, because what happens is, and that's a really good question, but when they're infants, males and females are equal. Okay. So at what point do females become dominant? And unfortunately, when I was in Madagascar, we had a cyclone and a drought, um, and 10 of the 12 infants died that I was following, mm-hmm. and so that was pretty hard um, to deal with, but... I ended up doing a comparative analysis with some free ranging lemurs on this island off the coast of georgia u s and so by the end, I only had one female that I actually was able to see through puberty and she actually did have changes in her testosterone mm-hmm. and stress hormones, but it was in the opposite way I would have predicted and Unfortunately, with only one female, I mean, I think it's still important, but you can only do so much with a sample size of one so it did seem that at puberty, you know, that's when the females enter the adult female hierarchy, mm-hmm. and that's when they start becoming dominant to the males.
1: But so in infants. puberty, that's when it switches.
0: Yep. Right, at sexual maturity.
2: For and you... I was just... Sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead.
0: Well, I was just hoping to get more um, kind of endocrine background on what was going on with that change. But unfortunately, you know, when you, when you do field studies, and especially in places where droughts and cyclones happen, you can't always predict the survival of the species or of the individuals you're studying, rather.
1: So if – and this might be a stupid question, but if you looked at humans, homo sapiens, are we female or male-dominant?
0: I think that's a great question. I would say that we're male-dominant. Okay. So it depends really. I mean, on what society you're looking at as well, because across the world you get different societies where females actually are dominant to males. Mm. Like there's some some um, societies in Asia that I've had uh, anthropology colleagues studying. So it really depends. I think you know in Western In the Western Hemisphere, males are more dominant to females. Usually this is correlated with body size. And so the fact that we do have sexual dimorphism, meaning males are larger than females, on average, you know, of course, there's variations within. That usually goes along with the male dominance. But, you know, you definitely can get egalitarian societies where there are equals. And it really, it depends, you know. I would say that humans are monomorphic in any way.
1: And and what do you mean by monomorphic?
0: Meaning that
1: it's static one way.
0: No, meaning that all human societies are the same.
1: Okay. Um, now, is this a normative function? Like, like okay. So when you're looking at the ringtail lemurs, you have the you have the higher levels of whatever that are causing the females to be dominant. I mean, is, is that dominance just that they have more of that than the male, or is there also like a normative function? Like, uh, like a sociological function that's occurring that allows the male lemur to be okay with that or expect that?
0: Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, <laughs> the way that you phrase it is interesting as well, being a male. Um, <laughs> with, you know, is he okay with being bossed around the well, he's going to be? <laughs> well,
1: no, I mean, because cause, cause I, I guess what I would, I would say is there's – back right like there's a um like it like you know if, if there are two like really egotistical people or two two very dominant people let's say we put them in a room together are they both going to just fucking go at it for the, for the entire eternity are they going to make peace with each other and just accept that they're both dominant or is one of them going to succumb to the other and so i'm i'm wondering if if like submission to hierarchy is something that's actually like something in the genetic code of an animal that is in that dominated area in that species. Is there anything that points to that, or is that just silly? Do you all not even, like, worry about that, or, you know, what?
0: No, I mean, that, that really is the heart of what I was trying to find out. Okay. With my thesis is, you know, because we know that male and female infants are equal, or, you know, their females are not um, uniformly dominant to the males when they're infants. And they do play and interact and have dominant hierarchies, and then some will submit to others when they're infants. So then it becomes, all right, when they're juveniles and going into sexual maturity, you know, the following year or their third year, you know, I was watching very carefully, but you know, especially between, like, the adult males and the female that was becoming going through puberty and entering the adult female hierarchy. And, you know, at one point, they're still acting where he's still dominant to her, you know, because he's an adult or older male. And then the juveniles were still dominant to her. and Or sorry, the uh, sub-adult males were still dominant to her. And then just one day, she's able to make them submit. She approaches them and they go away. And it's not that there was any other behavior going on that I saw, you know, but there is the issue that, you know, this is a a matriline, meaning that, you know, it's males leave the group, the females that are related stay in that group. And so there is support of the different females by the dominant females, you know, Um, and Mm -hmm. all the females against the males. So that's why I really want to look at the hormonal switch is what's happening there. And so, you know, hormones really are important, and, you know, you think about it in terms of like depression, you know, people who have never suffered from depression don't understand what a chemical imbalance really is about, you know, but anyone who has gone from not taking their antidepressants and dealing with a chemical imbalance to taking the antidepressants and being, feeling more normal, you can see the night and day that happens, you know. Yeah in terms of your emotions, your behaviors, and all that. And so I think it's a good point that you made that, you know, if it is the case that the females have, on average, higher testosterone than the males, the less testosterone you have, on average, you know, the less aggressive you will be. And, of course, that's reinforced with the cultural and societal um, aspects as well. So, But I think it really comes down to sex, you know, because... Basically, the males, you know, it it comes down to female choice. The females have to actually choose to have sex with the males. And so, you know, they're going to submit during... Most of the year, during the breeding season, they'll start trying to wave their tails and look really sexy to the females. And occasionally, the females will cuff them, which means basically bitch slap them. Um, and males have a specific... Yeah, that's what they do. Like, there's a little male. He'll be... He has a little anal scent glands and um, oh, wrist scent glands. And so he rubs his tail through them. And he flicks his tail over his head to waft the, the scent at the female. And he makes a little... Um, submissive chitter is what it's called, a vocalization. And, you know, the female will just be lying on the tree branch, you know, just chilling out. She'll let him come a little closer, and finally she'll just turn and just cuff him, you know, with her hand on his face, and he'll scream and run away. But other times, you know, the female will walk out, you know, when she's more receptive, and you'll see the male and her kind of go away from the group, and then she'll allow him to mount and things like that. So... There are lots of hypotheses in terms of why female dominance occurs, you know, and in some cases, it's the case that it might be a male-male competition strategy. It might be, um, you know, saving energy for the females or giving them the best food resources so that they'll be in better condition for um, reproduction and things like that. It's never really been proven that's one thing I hope to do, but when you set out as a PhD student to answer a question that hasn't been solved in 60 years, it's probably for a good reason that it hasn't been <laughs> solved, and <laughs> you might not solve it in <laughs> five or six years of research.
1: And that concludes part three of our interview with Susan Longest. part four is to follow. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on March 16th, 2014. This is part four of our four-part interview with Susan Longus, where we will wrap up this wonderful conversation we've been having with her. Enjoy. You're talking about the natural world and a lot of dominance occurring. Mm-hmm. Do you believe, knowing what you know about spe- other species, that dominance in human society is a bad
0: thing? Um, so the reason I actually wanted to study dominance in animals and I've studied coalitions and things like that is because I always wanted to apply it to humans. I was very torn between human rights work and science, and I figured Mm -hmm. I couldn't do human rights work and do science on the side, but I could do science and and the field be involved with human rights work wherever I was, whatever country I was in. And, you know, very much I was thinking about the fact that you asked about when you have two very dominant people, right, in a room, and I think it depends on personality and then just perseverance, whether they get in, but You can't have dominance without submission. And so um, Selma Rowell, many decades ago, wrote this really um, foundational uh, work on submission and the importance of submission. And so if you have two individuals, you know, we we figure out dominance by looking at when one animal approaches another animal within like six uh, feet or so, two meters, you know, does one walk away? Does it submit? Is it? displaced is what I would call it behaviorally and so if one isn't then you can't figure out who's dominant there and so when you have that going on if you have one that's trying to be dominant to another individual but the other individual doesn't submit then what you do is you get reinforcements you form a coalition to then gang up on the other individual
2: you know on the one that's dominant.
0: on the one that wasn't submitting oh okay yeah. So if you have a standoff, how are you going to force the other individual to back down? You get help, right? Okay. And, you know, you see that in bullying. You see that all across the the human society. And it's sad. I mean, when I came back from Madagascar, sometimes I couldn't even watch Survivor <laughs> because of the what goes on on that show. But anyway, so in terms of with humans, I'm actually starting an interdisciplinary course with a forensic anthropologist who worked on the mass graves in Bosnia and Iraq and also with a social worker who teaches psychology as well. And it's on aggression. And so one is going to talk about the psychology of aggression. I'm going to talk about aggression and non-human primates Mm -hmm. um, and coalitions and kind of warfare and stuff like that. And then we're going to talk about genocide and the anthropology of aggression, focusing on case studies in in Bosnia and Rwanda. So we're just starting this course up, and hopefully the administration will let us teach it in the near future. But I don't think it's possible to avoid dominance, and I don't know that we would want to. You know, if you look at revolutions and uprisings, you know, one of my favorite books is Animal Farm, and that's a satire on Russian politics. And so the problem is that, and what happened in Animal Farm is you have – humans kind of bossing around the animals, right? They're in control, and then the animals take over. But what happens is when the animals take over, they go from being good to some of them filling in those roles of power and becoming just as bad as the humans, you know? Mm, And so I think when you have that kind of opportunity to have those power roles, sometimes they can be used for good, you know, leading revolutions, leading... Movements for equality and human rights, but there's always some people that are going to use them for evil.
1: Because one of the things that I see a lot in the like the activist community is people taking a clear view of dominant behavior and trying to um, like like in, in in situations where people have privilege and this kind of thing like maybe they're a white male or, you know, um, yeah, that's pretty much the pyramid of privilege, the top of the pyramid of privilege right there. So in and, and this society and, and trying to alleviate that dominance. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about this question, like whenever I hear about a dominant behavior, I, I kind of think of the word asshole, you know? So when you're like talking about like, the dominant lemur. I'm like the asshole lemur. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's where my mind goes. Like I've, I've come to think that dominance is a, it's a kind of a barbaric thing that we do because of evolution, because we've done it for so long. But since we have things like writing and philosophy because we've evolved as a species to be able to have these things and be able to question our actions and our behaviors and how they affect others sociologically or you know psycholo- psychologically and sociologically and um and we can ask like questions that go beyond our immediate survival and immediate procreation that we can start to you know like think of things like hmm, maybe I shouldn't eat animals to live or hmm maybe I shouldn't um Respond with violence to people that are attacking me, and so I, I I've looked at the reluctance to use force and and violence as a reluctance also to to engage in dominance to kind of engage more in um, symmetrical relationships of power with people is is that just you know because c- i when i hear people talking about pro violence or or pro confrontation you they end up justifying essentially dominance in animals as a reason to continue you know they they start talking about the animal kingdom and how the lions got you know like some weird uh metaphor about you know lions defending something or you know something like this i mean how do you view that do you think that that becoming more egalitarian engaging more in symmetrical uh or sympathetic um, sharing of power in, in, in um, social situations is, is that is that anti-evolutionary or is 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 that um, is that actually evolutionary behavior?
0: No, yeah, I would think it's adaptive, meaning that it is it is something that could evolve. I mean, for example about bonobos, you know, these are pygmy chimpanzees. Many people, you know, you might not be able to tell the difference between a bonobo and um a chimp. And they're most closely related, you'd call those sister species, um, of the primates. And in chimps, you know, they have books like chimpanzee warfare written or chimpanzee politics and, you know, you have chimps leading coalitions to chase down um, call monkeys and beat them with a the stick and eat them or even to beat up other chimps, but then you get food sharing and stuff like that, too. Um, very male-dominant society. Then you get bonobos or bonobos, or you want to pronounce it, and those are more females' ruling, and females use sex for everything. Is there an argument? Let's have sex. Uh you know, if you just want to have sex, let's have sex then, too. If <laughs> you want a massage, let's have sex. And what's interesting is, is, you know, it's basically the most peaceful example in the primate world compared to the most violent society, and they're the most closely related. So how did those two strategies evolve, right? Mm-hmm. What's interesting, too, is one of those are um, pretty much the only primate species besides us, uh, non-human primates, that have face-to-face sex. So in every other non-human primate um, species, you know the male mounts from behind, but in bonobos they have face-to-face sex, and also they have female-female sex. That's what they're known for as well. You know, so sex is used as a strategy for peacemaking, not just for uh, reproductive success. Wow. And you can make your own conclusions about that. But one thing I do, I know. Before you blow your mind that way, but the other thing is, you know, in terms of why we define dominance, you know, in terms of the animal world, dominance came as basically a means to have predictable interactions between individuals and groups so that, you know, if you had a bunch of food out, I always say to my students, if I put five Subway sandwiches in the middle of this room of like 100 students, What would happen, right? And so you have competition, and so the idea with dominance is that by having these hierarchies of high-ranking to low-ranking individuals, you know the order. You know when there's food, the high-ranking individuals go in there, and then it goes down that hierarchy. So you know the lower-ranking individuals get uh, last access to the food and whatever's left. You know, but. Theoretically, this does decrease them doing all-out warfare every single time food is found. You know. Now.
1: Really? So, so that that the hierarchy.
0: Level, not not.
1: So the hierarchy serves kind of like as a, a a pacifying. Like, I mean, it creates order.
0: Yes. I guess that makes sense. Now, of course, yeah. then you get overthrowing right at the hierarchy just like in humans, you know, like that targeted aggression I was talking about. Um, and that's where you need coalitions to remove a female from her power in the ring lemur world. But, you know, but it does make sense. I mean, if, if whether it's in the provision society where it's a captive society, people are putting food out there for them or they find a tree of mangoes or, you know, a cache of seeds or something like that, then if you're all there and you're all equal, then... You know, it's just, like, all competing for sports tickets. You know, people are going to get really pissed off. <laughs> There's no, like, hierarchy of being, but if you're all given, like, a number first pick and that kind of thing, you know, all right, well, I don't get a chance till my number comes up. And you might still be pissed about it, but you're not hopefully going to make a fight about it. So that was the original concept behind, uh, you know, dominance, the creation of dominance, the creation of dominance hierarchies and that kind of thing. Now, surely there's exceptions. I mean, obviously fighting and injury and death happens even in societies with dominance hierarchies, but it's on a lesser scale than it probably would be if there was no order to that society. Wow. Wow. But at we, the same time, you know, you have these situations where, like I said, the more dominant individuals might have higher stress hormones or the opposite is true. And so obviously there is stress involved in that. But I think any time you have a society, there's stress involved.
1: Yeah. Well, probably just any – even regardless of the societal function, there's got to be stress, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, society probably eases the stress to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. By sharing work and this kind of thing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um, well, cool. I think that's uh, I think that's it. Is there anything um, you'd like to close with saying or
0: um, well, I don't know. I'm glad that we did this. I think you know I've been talking for years about us actually collaborating on something, so it's nice that, and one of your many creative endeavors. Um that you reached out to me so that was kind of cool it was fun
1: yeah I'm, I'm glad you took the time to talk with me
0: yep i'm happy to educate you anytime gary <laughs>
1: yeah well you definitely were i don't <laughs> fucking know half the shit you're talking like uh-huh yeah <laughs> right okay <laughs> well, cool. all right susan well i love you all right, love you. All all right. right take care bye <laughs> And that concludes our interview with Susan. All of our episodes are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on March 16th, 2014.
2: Thank you for listening.